cycle of Yom Tov Shiurim are dedicated by the family of Dr. Chuck Feldman, in memory of an exemplary model of dedication to family, community, and Torah education. And I've uh, mentioned often and again that I knew Dr. Feldman and it was minimally absolutely true. His dedication was a model. The way he was, the way he lived, the things he worked for, it was, uh, it was a privilege to know him. Um, I'll start telling you a story. Not the story that I told last week, but a different story. When, uh, and this story can be verified by my wife who is sitting here, I think. Uh, I, I, I usually don't tell the stories perfectly correctly, I tend to embellish them and make them better than they actually were, but I'll try to tone it down. When uh, we got married, Miriam and I, uh, it was in whatever it was. Well, we came on Aliyah in 1965, right? 1965. So when we got married, so, you know, people, so we got, we, we received a lot of presents which were useless. You know, like a lot of things that you just pass on to the next wedding or something if you can get away with it. But we got one very interesting present. I had a friend. Uh, in fact, he was my charusa for a while in yeshiva. who wanted to get us something special. So he happened to go to Yerushalayim. He took a, he himself went to Yerushalayim. And he went to Abu Tor. You know Abu Tor is? If you stand on the fence, there used to be a fence at Abu Tor dividing up Israel Abu Tor from Jordanian Abu Tor. There was a fence. And on one side of the fence were Israeli soldiers who generally looked quite unkempt and unprofessional. And on the other side of the fence were Jordanian legionnaires who looked really good. And the difference between them was emphasized by the fact that the Israeli soldiers smoked time cigarettes. And the Jordanian soldiers smoked Marlboros. And that was the situation. Now, if you wanted to see Har Habayit, if you wanted to see Har Habayit, and the, a little bit of the Kotel, you couldn't really see it. You couldn't really see it, but you could imagine that you see it. You could see the mosque. The Mosque of Omar, you know, the yellow, the yellow dome at the Mosque of Omar. So you stood on the fence. He stood on, this is what my friend did, my Chavrusa. He stood on the fence. He had like a, one of those brownie cameras. Remember the days that people had cameras that were not phones? <laughs> or phones that were not cameras? I don't So he had this little camera. He took a picture. And the picture came out to be like... Uh, five by seven size print and and it said and he wrote on he put it in a frame and he wrote on it Har Habayit and he gave it to us as a wedding present is this correct Miriam so far so anyway we got this wedding present in New York so of course I said this I need this a microscopic picture of Har Habayit but I, all I could see is the Mosque of Omar you know, like, what do I need it for? So I came to Israel in 1965. And so, so we had these pictures. I had these two little pictures. I put them someplace. And then I went to, uh, I said, let's go to the place where these pictures were taken. You know, that's the only, that was as close as you could get to Har Habayit in, the, in those days. So, and, and, uh, and the, the United Nations imposed on Israel a regulation that you couldn't fly over Yerushalayim. They, the planes could not fly over Yerushalayim. Any planes, commercial planes or military planes. So, so all you had, I mean, the opposition were these Jordanian soldiers. And you would climb on the fence and look over to see the Mosque of Omar and imagine, you imagine that you could see the Kotel. So that was the expression of the, almost a feeling of futility. 
you know, like after all these thousands of years of dreaming about Yerushalayim, I mean, what is it that we were thinking about all that time? So even though, even though we, uh, the battle was won, the battle in 1948 was a great victory for, for the people in Israel because, because there were a lot of them and not so many of us. And we were able nevertheless to emerge victorious from, from all of that. But we were not able, we, we, you felt that you were in jail because you couldn't see the Kotel Maravi. Not that you couldn't get to it, you couldn't see it. And you had to just imagine it, standing on the, on the fence at the uh, Kotel Maravi. So when, when it became known to everybody that, uh, that everything has changed, that, uh, uh, that it was gonna be possible to go to the Kotel Maravi, so, that was like a 2,000 years of expression just emerged to come out of the, out of the people who lived in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael at that time. And when they opened up the Kotel, when they opened it up to the public, like on Shavuot, it seemed like everybody, I remember the whole country, I mean, it was Shavuot, but everybody in the whole country came to see what they had not been able to see for, uh, for 20 years. But it was not only that. Uh, uh, Moshe Dayan, I, I think I told you, Moshe Dayan will go down in history for many different things. But one of them is that he, um, he created the Rachava in front of the Kotel. He decided that it was um, what, what the Arabs had done was build a housing, housing in front of the Kotel. They built a, uh, you know, like, like a slum in front of the Kotel Maravi. So the only way, it, it, before 48, when you could still go there, it was like a street. You could, there are pictures uh, that you could, you could see of the street that's, they had a different name for it, uh, the Arabs. But the street, the one side of the street was a wall, and the other side of the street were houses. And the, the wall was the Kotel. Of course, it was much smaller than it is now. I mean, it was, it was not so impressive, actually. So Dayan, he went and he got the Kablanim in Yerushalayim to knock down the houses and to start digging down. Uh, you know, they had, the, of course, test studies and engineers as a house, in order to uncover more layers of the wall, those big rocks that you see, those big stones that you see when you go to the Kotel today, they were underground. Right, so there were two attempts. The, if you look at the top of the Kotel, you see small stones, like bricks, or, I mean like, not bricks, but small stones, like uh, eight inches by eight inches, or maybe 10 inches by 10 inches, small stones at the top. That was Moshe Montefiore's solution. He looked at the Kotel and he said, it's not big enough. I mean, this is, this is it, you know, this is it. So he said, we'll make it bigger. But it looked awful because you couldn't put big, massive stones on top of the Kotel. They were afraid the whole thing would collapse. So they put these small stones. They built it up about maybe a meter. You know, they built it up a meter. But then, in, the, in 1967, they dug down and they uncovered these, the massive stones that were the foundation stones for the Kotel Maravi, and they knocked down all the Arab houses. I don't know what happened to the Arabs who lived in those houses, but I've never heard from them. So I suppose they made some kind of an arrangement which was acceptable to, to everybody. So that the, um, it was, it was the, the period from 1948 to 1967 for people who dreamed. You know, if you had a dream that you'd like to dominate the Kotel, or you'd like to be at the Kotel, like to see the Kotel, which was you know, I had never, I had never seen the Kotel in, in my life. So that was like a dream come true. Even though, I mean, it's also true that I'd never seen Shechem in my life. Uh, but I'm not, I wasn't that interested, you know, for some reason. Even though Shechem is an important place in the biblical accounting of things. But it's not like, it's not the, the, what people thought about in the Kotel. So that... Uh, the emotional outpouring at that time was rather remarkable. It wasn't just a victory. 
It was a change in the in your spiritual reality. Sometimes, somehow, if you you know, religious people understood that they hadn't made it. There was something that they were missing in their in their world, and so and 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 in a second, it all came. It all happened, and the the Jordanian soldiers on the other side of the fence in Abu Tor disappeared, and then the fence disappeared. And for a long time, Abu Tor was a mixed neighborhood. There were Arabs who lived there, and the Jews who lived there. I mean, I don't know how it is today. I think it's a little bit. What? Still? But that's from before, that's before 67. You know, they all, it was a mixed, it was a mixed neighborhood. And, uh, and the Jordanians were pretty much in charge. And that all changed, it all changed. And people, uh, you know that the idea of Yerushalayim became the reality of Yerushalayim, which is kind of very, uh, very interesting. So I'd like to say a few things about Yerushalayim. Uh, on the sheet, on the sheet, there is a, a long quote from the Avot Rabbi Natan. Avot Rabbi Natan is um, some people call it like uh, the para, the Tosefta of Pirkei Avot. Like this Pirkei Avot is a Mishnah. And Avot the Rabbi Natan is sort of like completing it. It's much longer than Birkei Avot. And it has a lot of things in it that appear in the Gemara in different places. But, uh, but it's probably was written during the Gaonic period. Not the Tanaitic period, but in the Gaonic period. So li- listen to this. Now this, what the beginning is also in... Uh, in, uh, uh, the, in the Mishnah, the end of Pirkei Avot, it says, This is a, this is what it says, that there were ten miracles that happened in Yerushalayim. Right? There were ten miracles happened in Yerushalayim. Lohi pila isha mireach basah that there were no, uh, no women who had miscarriages because of the smell, smell of basar, right? the korbanot, there were a lot of korbanot, there was a lot of, you know, the Rambam says that uh, the ketoret, the uh, incense offering, was brought in the Beit HaMikdash because uh, of the smell, the terrible smell of the blood. So they had to cover it up. But this is what, this is what the Mishnah said. I, I, I have no idea what this means. You know, whether this really happened or didn't happen, but this is what the Mishnah says. It's in the Mishnah also. It's not only in Avod the Rabbi Natan, it's in the Mishnah. The second thing is, Lo Yerushalayim. Nobody was ever damaged or hurt in Yerushalayim. Lo Adam Yerushalayim And nobody fell into a hole in Yerushalayim. Lo Neflad Yerushalayim. And there was no fire that set fire to things in Yerushalayim, may Allah ever. And no walls fell down in Yerushalayim. Never happened that somebody came to Yerushalayim and was unable to cook up his carbon Pesach. Right? It never happened. I mean, you imagine all these people coming, they all have to do the same thing. It never happened that somebody came to Yerushalayim, Ali Regel, and, uh, and he said, I couldn't find a place to sleep. I mean, uh, okay. Mita uh, Yerushalayim. That I have no place, there's no place for me uh, to sleep in Yerushalayim. So this is what the Mishnah says. This is what the Mishnah says. Now if we don't sort of like focus on the individual statements, but we try to understand uh, uh, what, what could this Mishnah possibly mean? I take, let's pick one, that there was uh, this one. Uh, no walls fell down in Yerushalayim. Like walls sometimes fall down. What do you mean? What does this? What does this whole Mishnah say? 
So, I mean, none of these things, the introduction of the Mishnah is Asarani Sim Nasulavotenu. There were ten miracles that happened in Yerushalayim. But these really, we wouldn't call them miracles, would we? They're regulars. This is like, this is what happened. The, the wall didn't fall down. Why didn't the wall fall down? Because people who built the wall built it properly. Uh, there was never a fire in Yerushalayim because people took care not to have a fire, or not to let the fire spread. Uh, there was always a place for the people who came out of the Alarego, there was always a place for them to sleep in Yerushalayim. Why? Because the people did that. They, they made sure. So what is this? What is this business of Asarani Sim Nasula Botenu? Bamikdash or Biyushalayim? What, what does Asarani Sim mean? So we know that at a much later date in Jewish history, at a much later date in Jewish history, when the Ramban tried to summarize the attitude, the necessary attitude that we should have to the world in which we live. So the Ramban said, it's all a miracle. What did he mean that it's all, when he said it's all a miracle? He said that if you're really sensitive to reality, you understand that God is running the show. That was the opinion of the, of the Ramban. Now that was not the opinion of the, Ram, the Rambam. The Rambam thought that God could run the show, but that generally speaking, there's also nature. There's also teva. Things happen because that's the way they were, they were set up. But the Ramban, in this case, and many since the Ramban have echoed his position, that everything, everything is a miracle. Everything is a miracle. And the word miracle is defined as the result of the will of God. God wants it to be that way. And that's why it is that way. So if the sun rises tomorrow morning, it's because God wants the sun to rise. To us, it may look like what we call teva, may look like nature. We may even be able to, to use the fact that it seems to be recurring on a regular basis. And we can measure it, and we can talk about it, and we could apply it to different uh, kinds of ideas. But that doesn't mean the Ramban, so the Ramban agrees, the Ramban was also a scientist, right? The Ramban was also a doctor. And uh, that meant that he believed that you could do things to cure people. There was a certain kind of causal uh, 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 situation that the Ramban thought was correct, was, was true. But beyond that, he thought that everything is the will of God. Everything is the will of God. He calls the Chazal. Chazal said that, uh, that when God planted, planted grasses in the world, there's a malach, there was a malach in heaven, an angel. Each blade of grass had a malach. And the malach beat on the blade of grass, and it grew. And it grew, which means, which means that, unlike the Rambam, again, the Rambam says, the Rambam says at the end of the Moron of Uchim, he says, uh, the last, the last the two chapters of the, of the Moron of Uchim, he discusses, the Rambam says, look, when Zayed, Zayed is John Smith in, of the Arabs. So he says, when Zayed, steps on a cockroach. You can't say that God wanted that cockroach to die. He says, that would be a little bit much, according to the Rambam. He says, you know, Zayed, cockroach, God is not thinking about that. But God could be thinking about that. That the Rambam, that the Rambam agreed about. In other words, that God has ultimate control, even though there may not be, moment-by-moment uh, moment control of the cockroach and Zayed walking and stepping on that cockroach. He doesn't say cockroach, by the way, but I don't remember what, maybe an ant or something, something like that. So, so that's the, uh, the ultimate machloket about the relationship between, between Kodesh Bohu and the created world. But in this Mishnah that we just learned, the Mishnah says, 
Look, when you're in your Shalai, everything's a miracle. That's, that's what it really says. It says you don't, it doesn't have to be Kriyat Yamsuf. You don't have to have the splitting of the Red Sea. That's what you need when you're in <coughs> Egypt or when you're running out of Egypt. To have a miracle, to be miraculously saved, you've got to see that miracle. You've got to know it's a miracle. Otherwise, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you are. You, have, you can't have faith in, in God's concern about you unless there is a real miracle that is taking place. That's what, that's what uh, uh, we see from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, that, that again and again, the Jewish people had doubts about what was happening and where they were, because the miracle, as I've tried to explain again and again, the miracle only works for the moment. There's, a miracle doesn't prove that God is concerned about me later on, right? That, that, that tomorrow God will be concerned about me as God is today. The miracle can't prove that. The miracle is a miracle, very nice, you know, you have a miracle, but, but if you see the running of the world as being miraculous, then you're in a different position. So what does this Mishnah say? This Mishnah says remarkably, this Mishnah says remarkably that uh, in Yerushalayim, everything's a miracle. Everything's a miracle. And that, that, that's what's special. That's what's special about, about Yerushalayim. Even things, even things that seem to us to be very regular and not worth mentioning particularly. I mean, you're not going to mention the fact that the houses, the houses haven't fallen down recently in Yerushalayim. It's not something you're going to talk about. Uh, quite the contrary. You wait for something to happen to talk about it. Don't talk about something that didn't happen. But in Yerushalayim, in the, according to this Mishnah, everything is different. Everything is different in Yerushalayim, and everything's a miracle. If everything's a miracle. Everything is a miracle. It means not that the Ramban is right, but that in Yerushalayim, the Ramban is right. That's the that's what the that's what the Mishnah says. That in Yerushalayim, everybody sees things differently. Everybody sees things differently. Now you know, you know that uh, for some reason, the Kibush and Chalukah, the conquest of Eretz Yisrael, and dividing Eretz Yisrael amongst the tribes, right? That took place in the days of Yoshua bin Nun. Yoshua bin Nun was the Talmud and inheritor of the mantle of Moshe Rabbeinu, even though he was different. He was different than Moshe Rabbeinu. Yoshua bin Nun spent his life fighting battles and was not uh, uh, recognized as the leading teacher of Torah in his, uh, in his generation, uh, as Moshe Rabbeinu was. He was different, different than Moshe Rabbeinu. The land of Israel was divided up amongst the tribes before Yehoshua ben Nun died. Yerushalayim, the, the Beit HaMikdash, was built 430 years after B'nai Yisrael conquered the land, or 420 years after B'nai Yisrael conquered the land. Why was that? What was this delay? What was this delay about? So I just want to imagine if you turn over the page, you have a very poor map of the distribution of the Shvatim. I just want to make sure that you know this before we, you see the top, the picture on top, you see the circle next to the sea, Yam HaMelech, right to the left of Yam HaMelech, there's a, there's a circle. No? It, I have it in my piece of paper here. That circle, that circle is Yerushalayim. That circle is Yerushalayim. So that means from Yerushalayim in south, you have the tribe of Yehuda. And from Yerushalayim in north, you have the tribe of Binyamin. And even on this, on this picture, you could see Yehuda is very big. 
the area of Yehuda is very big and probably includes Yericho, which is not on the map, but you know more or less where it is. And the area of Binyamin is much smaller. What? On the other map, yeah, I know. I'll get to it in a minute. Right, thank you. Uh, I just want to, want to get to this idea. So you have Binyamin and to the north of Yehuda. And the boundary between Binyamin and Yehuda, that line that goes through Yerushalayim, that's where the boundary is between Yehuda and Binyamin. It actually goes through Yerushalayim. To the south of Yehuda is another small tribe called Shimon. You see Shimon? Now if you look at the other map, which is sort of, uh, it distorts what I just said, but it doesn't have to. You see Binyamin looks very big in the second map on the bottom, and Yehuda, but you have to understand that this is a map of Binyamin. It's not a map of the whole thing. So Yehuda, in the map on the bottom, would stretch all the way down to the bottom of the page. That would be Yehuda. Okay. So now, in the continuation of the Avot Rabbi Natan, Asarat Varim Nemrubi Yerushalayim, in the, in the Avot Rabbi Natan, it's usually numbered, and this is uh, Gimel, this is Mishnah Gimel. En Yerushalayim metam'a benega'im. So in Yerushalayim, in Yerushalayim, there was a problem of Tumah, of, of be, becoming unclean uh, by coming into contact, say, with a dead body. And the problem was that then you wouldn't be able to go into the Beit HaMikdash. And since in Yerushalayim there were Kohanim and Leviyim and people who brought Korbanot, and, and so they, they set up safeguards. There were many safeguards against Tum'ah. So he says, Eindi donit bi'irani dachat. Yerushalayim is not part of the irani dachat of Vodazarat. Ve'emotzi'im bazizin v'gzusterot v'tzinarot l'rishut ha'rabim m'ibnei o'el Tum'at ha'meh. So you did you didn't have balconies on the houses because if you had a balcony and you stood under the balcony and inadvertently you, you found yourself under a balcony with a dead body, so you would become tamay. That's called tumat ohel. If you're in a, in an enclosed space, even if you don't contact, come to contact with the dead body directly, the dead body makes you tamay. So they didn't have that. They didn't build balconies in, in, uh, in Yerushalayim, which was the way it was in Yerushalayim when we came in Aliyah. They, most of the houses didn't have what we call today sukkah balconies. Right? There was a, sukkah was a problem. Today, uh, everything is different. You don't leave the dead body uh, over, right? Uh, so there's a whole list of things. Uh, the whole list of things that you don't do in, uh, in Yerushalayim. Okay, now if you skip the paragraph, the rest of that paragraph, to the words Katub Echad. You see that, where it says that, where the paragraph ends, the next line begins with Katub Echad. There's a pasuk. One pasuk says, Bachat Shvatecha. One of the Shvatim. The Katub Echad Omem, he calls Shvatecha. All of the tribes. Bechad Shvatecha zo shevet Yehuda u'binyamin. Bechad Shvatecha, one of your Shvatim, that's Yehuda and Binyamin. Mikol Shivtechem zo Yerushalayim. Zo Yerushalayim. So what is, what's the, what is it talking about? What do you mean? Mikol Shvatecha, that's Yehuda and Binyamin. Bechad, I'm sorry, Bechad Mishvatecha, that's Yehuda and Binyamin. Mikol Shvatecha, that's Yerushalayim. Shekol Yisrael shutafim ba. All of Bnei Yisrael are partners in Yerushalayim. Mahaya bechelkol she Yehuda. Which part of Yerushalayim was in Yehuda? Well, Harabayit, v'alishachot, the shachot offices, v'azarot, and the the halls, the 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 outer yards. What was in the chalik of Binyamin? 
Rosh Tor it was like a piece of Binyamin that went out in other words there's Yehuda you, they divide up the Beit HaMikdash between them, Yehuda and Binyamin Yehuda he got the bigger area right, the Azara and the Lishachot and uh, the, the stairways into the Beit HaMikdash and the doors and all that and Binyamin, what did Binyamin get? He got the Kodesh Kadashim and the Mizbeach the inside, the golden Mizbeach. So it was as though a line went through the Beit HaMikdash, right? The northern part belonged to, was from Binyamin, and the southern part was from Yehuda. Okay? And then he says, uh, Ligvura. He became uh, he became the one who who uh, who did hachnasat uh, He brought in as a guest. He brought in that that God was dwelling between his shoulders. Amar Yehoshua for Tasha at that time. So Yoshua said, Yoshua Binu, he said, I'm giving out this, I'm giving out the Beit HaMikdash. I'm giving out the ground of the Beit HaMikdash. I mean, some will go to Binyamin, and some is going to go to Yehuda. So he says, I better do something. Dushna means the best place of you, the best part of Yericho. Where is Yericho? It's over there on the map. It's not on the map, but I told you where it was, right? You go east of Yerushalayim, towards Yamamela, you come to Yericho. You come to Yericho. Dushna Shal Yericho. Umi Achla Kol Otan Hashanim. Who was eating Dushna Shal Yericho? All of those years, all of which years, we'll tell you in a minute. B'nai Keni Chotein Moshe, the sons of Keni, who was the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, Shneemar. There's a pasuk in the Novi B'nai Keni Chotein Moshe Alumi Iratmarim, Iratmarim, Iratmarim. So what is it that the, that this that this Mishnah Medrash is talking about? Is talking about this Yeshua Benun. Yeshua Nun says, I'm giving out Eretz Yisrael to all the tribes. There's no Beit HaMikdash. There was nothing there. Nothing. He says, part of the Beit HaMikdash of the future is, goes to Binyamin, and part of Beit HaMikdash of the future goes to Yehuda. That's what, that's what uh, Yeshua Ben Nun knew. But at the end, after the, in 400 years, in 400 years, when David HaMelech starts to build the Beit HaMikdash, and Shlomo HaMelech builds the Beit HaMikdash, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen is that this land of the Beit HaMikdash is going to revert to all of the Jews. All the Shvatim are going to own Yerushalayim. Because Yerushalayim will be taken away from, it will be taken away from Yehuda and Binyamin, and will be given as a joint property to all the Shvatim of Yisrael. And as a result, as a result, Yehuda will get less than what he's supposed to get. It was he's supposed to get, he got this territory, and now he's going to lose it. I mean, he's going to own it in partnership with everybody else, but it's not like having your own Territory. He's going to miss out on having his own territory. So what was it that Yoshua said? I'll take Dushna Shel Yericho. I'll take the best property around the city of Yericho. And I'll put it in escrow for Yehuda. How will I put it in escrow for Yehuda? How will, how will I do that? How do you put property into escrow? He says, I'll give it to B'nai Keni. B'nai Keni were the sons of, 
of Yitra. And we know, at least the halacha is, that if you didn't leave Mitzrayim, if you didn't leave Mitzrayim with Yitziat Mitzrayim, you did not get a nachla in Eretz Yisrael. You didn't get... And that's why ultimately the story was that Yitro decided to leave. He decided to leave B'nai Yisrael because he was not going to get, he was not going to get a, a property in Eretz Yisrael. So the whole, all of Yitziat Mitzrayim didn't really apply to him on that level, on the land of property. Along came Yoshua bin Nun. And Yoshua bin Nun says, I'm going to put this land in, in Yericho in escrow for, I put it in escrow for, uh, for Yehuda. And so when Yehuda loses the land of the Beit HaMikdash, that the Beit HaMikdash is going to be built on, he's going to get the Dushna Shal Yericho because the children of Yitro understand that it can't belong to them. They can only be renters. They can be there temporarily. So that, that explains something more about Yerushalayim. Something more about Yerushalayim, that even though Yerushalayim was in somebody's territory, it could not become Yerushalayim unless all of Am Yisrael could own it jointly. And, and this was such a difficult undertaking that it took 40 years, 400 years, to build the Beit HaMikdash, 400 years. But worse than that, after the Beit HaMikdash was built by Shlomo HaMelech, Shlomo died, and then what happened? The country split into two. The country split into two, and the, the northern kingdom, the king of the northern kingdom, which was Binyamin and north, was Yeravam ben Nevat. Yeravam ben Nevat, even though he was granted the title of king of Yisrael by Achiyah HaShiloni, and Achiyah HaShiloni was, was in, himself a prophet, nevertheless he turned out to be a terrible person. He turned out to be a terrible person, and the split between the north and the south affected the Beit HaMikdash in this way, that in the south, which had Yehuda and Shimon, maybe, maybe Shimon, you know, not so, not so clear or known, Yehuda and Shimon were in the south, they were still with the Beit HaMikdash. Whereas in the north, in the north, one of Yeravam ben Nevat, one of the things he did was try to entice people away from the Beit HaMikdash by building uh, uh, religious centers, one up north and one in Beit El. Right, and, and, and Yeravam ben Nevat tried to get the people, tried to get the people to go to these centers and not to go to Yerushalayim. Not to go to Yerushalayim. So you see, so you see that the, the unity that was expressed, the unity of, uh, which was expressed by the building of the Beit HaMikdash, and the Beit HaMikdash was built on land that was owned commonly by all of the tribes, that only lasted a very short period of time before the north broke away and Yeravam ben Nevat set up his own temple, temples actually, one way up north and one in Beit El, and tried to entice the people in the north to stay away from Yerushalayim, therefore recreating, recreating this division. Recreating this division and in order to remake unity in Am Yisrael, something very terrible seems to have happened because the Assyrians, right, in 722 BCE, the Assyrians chased what we call the Ten Tribes, there may not have been Ten Tribes, but chased the Jews out of the north. And the Ten Tribes lost their identity. There was no longer Yisachar and Zvulun and Ephraim and Menashe, they disappeared. Either they literally disappeared, meaning they, uh, they were absorbed somehow into the, the general world into which they were exiled, or they just lost their identity and maybe later on joined up with the Jews. I mean, it was a long time. 586 BCE was the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian exile of the Ten Tribes of 722 BCE, right? That's 150 years, I think. Difference. 150 years is 
like seven generations. Uh, what happened during those seven generations, we don't know. We don't know, but, but we know that the Jews uh, who are, the Jews were kicked out by the Babylonians, the Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, which was all that was left. Maybe a little Benjamin, a little Shimon, but it was all called Yehuda. There was no, there was a reversion to one, there was one tribe, one unified entity called Yehuda. Right? And the Goyim called the Jews Yehuda. That was the name. That was the name that the, the Greeks gave and that the Romans eventually gave to the Jews. There was one tribe. Well, they were what? Well, the Shevet Levi would have had to be there because they served, they served, they were serving the Beit Hamikdash, right? So uh, only part. You mean, and therefore? So, so also Shevet Levi is also. Yeah, but they didn't have a nachlo. Okay. They We're talking about the tribes having a place, a separate place to live. What made them independent of each other was a boundary, like they had, they had land. These, all these tribes. But eventually, it all morphed into one. It became Yehuda. After the, the Churban Beit HaMikdash in 586 BCE. So when the Jews came back to Israel, there's only one tribe. Even though there may have been Jews left in Israel, the, to the northern part, the ten tribes. Ten tribes were kicked out. So I don't know if that means that every single person who lived in Eretz Yisrael was kicked out of Eretz Yisrael, who, who knows? But if I would, even if I'd make an assumption that there were some people left, they lost their identities as members of tribes. And they all became absorbed into Yehuda. And then the second Beit HaMikdash was built by this one, one group. You know, the, it was the, the first Beit HaMikdash you could say the people, even after 430 years, were not prepared, were not prepared to, uh, uh, for the unity. They couldn't put up with it. it. It was just too much. Everybody wanted to go to a different shul. Everybody wanted to have a different, a different place. They, they couldn't put up with the idea that there was one Beit HaMikdash. And so they, they, it had to go through this terrible state of adjustment where the Jews suffered because they had sinned, but they also disappeared. They didn't just suffer. If you read through the Bechukotai and Kitavo, the Tochacha, the Torah, it doesn't say you're going to disappear. It says everything else, but it doesn't say that, you're going to, that that punishment exists, that the Jews are going to disappear. So that's what happened with with Yoshua ben Nun. Yoshua ben Nun understood, according to this Medrash, that the temple could not be built because the people were not able to put up with the idea of building it together, of having one temple, having one place to be. They, they couldn't do that. So Yeravam and Avat said, well, I'll make you another temple. I'll make you a third temple. And it worked. It worked until the people went from from one sin to one crime to the next, and they were forced, they were forced to, uh, to go into exile. And the people who were with the Beit HaMikdash were not exiled. It's hard to say that Sancheriv thought about it in that way, but that's the way it happened. That's the way it happened. So Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim became not only a symbol of the unity that was possible for Am Yisrael, but it was really the unity of Am Yisrael. And so when the Jews came back from, ex from the exile in Babylonia, the first thing they went to do was to build the Beit HaMikdash. That's what they did. That's what they did because they understood. They understood that they were ready for that. And they weren't ready when they actually built the first temple. They weren't ready for that. So you have these two ideas that I present you with from the same text in the Avod de Rabbi Natan. One is that if you're in Yerushalayim, you have, a, you have a heightened sense of the miraculous. And the other is that Yerushalayim only exists as a reflection of unity, which doesn't mean that there's only unity. 
doesn't mean that I don't think. I don't think it means that people never disagree with each other or they always work together. Everything is idealistic and romantic. It's not, it's not that way. But that somehow people can, you know, people who have this spiritual capacity, who see the world, who see the world as being intervention by God, that that's what's happening in the world. Those are the nisim of the nisim of Yerushalayim. And they are able, they're able to overcome, they're able to overcome the differences. And they understand that in history, even though we started out as a nation of tribes, we ended up tribes, we, we distinguished ourselves. Right? Ruvay was different than Shimon, and Shimon was different than Levi, etc. Everybody was different than everybody else. But to have a Beit HaMikdash, you had to have a certain level of unity. You couldn't build the Beit HaMikdash. You couldn't build the Beit HaMikdash in, in any other way. So I think that, uh, I think, I mean, I don't think it's hard to, I'm not a poet, and therefore I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to uh, say anything that could be misconstrued. But I think that you know, the people who were around in 1967 uh, felt uh, not just a relief that now they would be able to go to the Kotel and Daven, uh, which I say for me doesn't always turn out so well. I mean, I don't think that uh, it uh, doesn't seem to me, for me, that davening at the Kotel is better than davening in a shul. But okay, I, I don't mind being the odd man out on these kind of things. But uh, uh, somehow there was a feeling, there's a feeling that this event could only be, uh, could only be, uh, understood within the context of a unified feeling and, 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 and the people uh, understood that it was like building the Beit HaMikdash. It was really like it, even though they didn't build the Beit HaMikdash, but they built a reality around the Kotel Maravi. The Kotel Maravi, which previously was really not anything too special, or interesting, they, they built it. They built the Beit HaMikdash for us, our Beit HaMikdash. Our Beit HaMikdash is the Kotel Maravi. I mean, people go to the Kotel Maravi. They, they, they say, let's go to the Kotel at Davin Mincha. Like it's, it's part of, of uh, regular life. It's part of regular life. It's not so much that I'm looking for a great spiritual experience at the Kotel, it's more that um, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And the Torah says, Ali Allah Regel, right? You go there. It doesn't say that you, you know, you smoke hash and feel good. It says that that's what you do. That's how you live your life. You go together with other people who you don't know, who you may never have seen before, we have no connection with necessarily. And together, together you do something simple, really simple, like you daven mincha. That's a really simple, like people who daven mincha every day, for them that's a pretty simple thing to do. But usually, if you go to a shul, I mean, you know the people, you see who they are, you may talk to them after davening or before davening, and, and you know, what's happening, what's going on, what's business, what's doing. These are all things that have to do with, uh, with the reality of life, right? The simple things in life. Whereas you go to the Kotel, it's different. It's a different experience. You might see somebody you know, but you're sure going to see a lot of people that you never saw before in your life, and yet you feel there's a commonality of interest. I think, I think maybe, uh, I mean, it doesn't bother me at all that you have a this kind of davening here, the other kind of davening third kind of davening, because they're all davening together, really. They, they, uh, they may think that, or some people may think they're davening separately from each other, but they really aren't. They're really davening together, because when one group says Kedusha, the other group has to kind of keep quiet and wait till they're finished. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, interesting. So I think, I think that they, these two points, these two points have to be uh, stressed when it comes to Yerushalayim. One is that there is a heightened sense of, of connection to God. 
and the other is that there's a heightened sense of the unity in, in Am Yisrael. I think that, my feeling is that in Israel, in spite of all the complaints and all of the things people say, that uh, we have been, I mean, compared to America, for example, where I grew up, I didn't grow up in America, I grew up in New York, but where I grew up, where I grew up, I would say that the, the, there's much uh, less success in integrating the blacks into the mainstream of whatever American life might be, then there is success in Israel in integrating all the different kinds of people that happen to come around and be part of uh, part of America. So, but, right, part of America. So, uh, I think that there is this idea. There is this idea that Jews have a special connection to each other, even if the the food they eat on Friday night is radically different from one group uh, to the to the other. Somehow, there is this sense of, um, at certain times, there's a sense of responsibility and, and uh, our unity. And this is all represented, to my mind, by Yerushalayim. It's Yerushalayim that created this idea for Am Yisrael. And it took a long time for the Jews to kind of fit in with that idea. And it, I think it continues to exist today in the Kotel in the Kotel Maravi, and, and even though the Kotel Maravi is not halachically the, really the Beit HaMikdash, but it acts as a Mikdash Ma'at, right? You know that in the Gemara, a shul, a Beit Knesset, is called Mikdash Ma'at. Like you have to think of, when you're building a shul, you have to think of the Beit HaMikdash. So that may or may not work out. That may or may not work out, but when you go to the, the Kotel Maravi, it's the Beit HaMikdash of our time. Right, it's like a real thing. It's a real. It's a real. Uh, it's not the. You know, it's not the most beautiful structure in the world. It's not the most impressive structure in the world, but it's the most important structure for the Jews in the world in Jerusalem. Okay, uh, have a good Shabbos.